This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Now more than six months into the COVID-19 epidemic, society is still searching for ways to cope with a highly contagious and lethal novel coronavirus. While the search for a vaccine continues apace, social distancing, defensive hygiene, and the reduction of higher-risk activities have helped to reduce the incidence of the disease in Massachusetts. Now, as we move out of late summer into colder, more indoor-oriented activity, schools and businesses are looking for additional strategies to better protect students, employees, and clients. Reliable testing seems to hold the best promise for returning to a society that operates closer to the pre-COVID-19 normal. With me today is a returning guest for Hubwonk, Hannah Mamushka, CEO of Alva 10. Hannah is an expert in precision medicine and diagnostic science. Hannah is here to share with us how testing technology has evolved from the start of the epidemic to present day. She will discuss the accuracy and efficacy of each type of test and where each is best used. Ms. Mamushka will also offer insight as to how precision medicine technology is evolving to where each of us may learn his own unique vulnerability to the novel coronavirus itself. When we return, I'll be joined by Hannah Mamushka, CEO of Alva 10. Okay, welcome back. This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi, and we're now joined by CEO of Alva 10, Hannah Mamushka. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Hannah. Thank you. It's so great to be back. Okay, I was checking my calendar and you joined us back in May. Uh, A lot has happened since then. At the time, we had a great conversation about uh, testing, but uh, coronavirus was in its early phase. uh, And a lot has happened since then. So what I'd love you to do is bring us up to speed on what's happened in testing technology since our last show uh, and bring us up to date. Sure. Yeah, it's been a it's been a really interesting three months. I mean, I think here in Massachusetts, I think we've done a phenomenal job. I think that we've done a great job in terms of getting our uh, prevalence of COVID nineteen down. And I think part of the way that we've done that is by identifying people who have it and reducing the spread. On the testing side, the PCR tests, which are the tests to you that we use to determine who has COVID nineteen most frequently, um, have become much more widely available. Um, In some areas of high disease prevalence, they're available for free. In a lot of other areas, they're available for free if you're symptomatic or if you know that you've been exposed to someone who has COVID-19. Otherwise, they're available at a cost of between $160 to $175 paid out of pocket. Uh, Additionally, some insurance companies have started covering virus testing more broadly, um, but it's still a gray area as to who's going to be covered for what. Additionally, more areas are testing for presence of antigens. And I think it's really important to discuss the difference between testing by PCR and the difference testing for antigen presentation, because I think there's a lot of confusion around sensitivity and what that really means. The PCR test that tests for the presence of the virus tests for the presence of the virus in a very long, durable way. 
meaning before you're infectious, while you're infectious, and potentially weeks and maybe months after you're actually infectious. It tests for presence of the, the RNA component of the virus in your body. And that is very important and very useful and very helpful and definitively a benchmark in diagnostics. But where we are right now, what we actually need to know is who is currently actively infectious. When we think about going back to work, when we think about going back to school, what we want to know today is, are you infectious now? Not, were you infectious a month ago? Did you have it six weeks ago? We want to know if you're infectious now. And the antigen tests are actually the best tests to do that. Those are the tests that tell us, is your body, is your immune system reacting to a specific virus the viral antigen is what they're looking for in that test. And that'll tell you pretty surely whether you actually have active virus that's infectious today or not. Okay, you've given us quite a bit of information. Uh, so let me try to catch up. Uh, if I understand you correctly, the PCR test tells us if we've been exposed to the virus, whether it's our first day or we had the disease six months ago and are no longer contagious. Uh, and somewhat accurate uh, in its results. The antigen uh, test, by contrast, is testing whether you are actively experiencing the virus and uh, presumably whether you're still contagious. Do I have that right? And if we're talking about these tests, I'd like to learn more about the accuracy of each and, of course, the turnaround time, uh, as we both can accept uh, a test that is very accurate but takes a while to get a result uh, is a lot like having a smoke detector that goes off seven days after the house burns down. So uh, what can you tell us about the accuracy and, of course, the turnaround time of each of these respective tests? Yeah, no, that's not helpful at all. So I think the 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 discrepancies in sensitivity between um, the PCR test and the antigen test are a little bit confusing because if you're using the antigen test and comparing it directly with the PCR test in terms of um, absolute comparison between someone who tested positive by PCR and someone who tested positive by the antigen test, the antigen test is not going to pick up all those patients who are no longer infectious, which if you think about the fact that the PCR test will test positive for four, six, maybe even eight or 10, 12 weeks after, the antigen test would be called as false negative for all of those subsequent tests. If you're comparing it apples to apples. But the fact is, is that these are really looking at two distinctly different functions um, and they shouldn't be compared like that. The antigen test is really looking at a function of the host immune system. So it's essentially saying, are you, is your immune system currently being challenged with exposure to COVID-19, whether or not you're symptomatic or, or asymptomatic? And during that period where it's being challenged, you are actively infectious. And so understanding that that type of a test is actually the test that we need, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be commingled with the PCR results. As far as turnaround time, I mean, I had an antigen test uh, a couple weeks ago, and I had the results back in 20 minutes. And I think that's the kind of time frame that we're looking at, if not faster, to be able to turn around. Getting results back in a couple weeks or even a couple days doesn't do you any good. You really want to know if you're infectious in the moment at that day. 20 minutes is very impressive. I don't think any of us would quibble with a 20-minute turnaround time. I suppose that would be ideal if we're talking about schools or office buildings, uh, perhaps even sporting events or weddings. 
Uh, so that's exciting, 20 minutes. Uh, can you share with us then uh, how easily or readily available these tests are? And of course, as a practical matter, how much might they cost either to us as individuals or to the organizations, the schools, the offices that we may attend? Well, the antigen tests are sometimes referred to by CVS or some of the other local testing facilities in the area as rapid tests or rapid antigen tests or rapid COVID PCR or rapid COVID tests, excuse me, not PCR. Um, And those tests are pretty widely prevalent, but they do tend to come with a high price tag because uh, there's a perspective right now that they're not as sensitive as the PCR tests, and so therefore they're not as, quote, good. Um, so most sites are charging between $160 and $175 for them, and I have not seen them widely covered by insurance at this time. So uh, that's uh, very useful, but very expensive. So imagine I'm a university or I'm a, a school or even an office. Uh, I don't want to give that to everyone every morning, uh, whereas I may want to do that. Um, What uh, have you seen as good strategies for taking great technology like this and applying it in a practical, cost-efficient way? Sure. Uh, For one, the cost of goods for the antigen tests are nowhere near $160 or $175. So it's certainly easier for a university lab to perform this test in-house and do it that way. In addition, there are several tests that are currently pending with the FDA, um, waiting a EUA designation that would allow you to spit in a cup. Um, it uses a really cool technology called LAMP, which is loop-mediated isothermal amplification. You don't have to remember that. Yeah, we promise. Um, no, no acronyms on this show. Uh, <laughs> but I appreciate you throwing one at us and then explaining. So. Thank you. It's uh, in, in, very, in very basic terms, what it does, um, it's, us- it's usually a spit test. And so you would spit into a test tube, into a small cup, and dip a little piece of paper in. And within a few minutes, you would see the paper change in a line, either saying that you were positive or that you were not positive. Um, it's looking for an amplification of the DNA um, of the virus. And so that type of technology should be relatively ready available Um, I'm really hoping very soon. I think that will be the key to having everyone going to school be tested, universities open, and and really people being able to go back to work efficiently. So in that uh, scenario where you are spitting in a tube and looking for the line, I'm assuming uh, that that is the patient himself doing the spitting and the patient himself doing the diagnostic uh, analysis of the results. Is that right? Do we find those... uh, the test to be reliable? Can people spit in cups? Yes, uh, people can spit in cups. I mean, this is very analogous to the at-home pregnancy test um, that is done at home millions of times a year. Um, It's relatively routine. It's relatively easy, reproducible, and the user is able to generate reliable results um, at home. If you were to, of course, have a positive with that test, then you would want to follow it up with a more sensitive test and, of course, talk to your physician. But the idea is to really start using this type of technology that may not be quite as sensitive as PCR, but to start being able to distribute it and democratize it around so that more people can get tested on a more regular basis more frequently. We will definitely catch more of the asymptomatic people uh, in our community, in our schools, using this type of technology. I mean, a lamp test at scale is maybe 50 cents a test. It's, it's remarkably cheap and easy to scale. So I think accuracy is something we should address. 
Uh, you had mentioned the PCR test being quite accurate, but it's essentially not what you're really looking for. You're looking for how contagious someone is or if they're indeed contagious. Um, what's the relative accuracy of the LAMPS test? Um, are we looking at 50% is catching half the sick people or 99 or 1% of the sick people? So from the data that I've seen, I think you're probably more in the 75 to 90% area where you're catching the majority of people with active viral infection which given where we are right now on the PCR side, uh, or even on some of the antigen test side, getting the turnaround time or the cost being both prohibitive, if we have a test where everyone could be testing every morning or a few times a week, you could do it in, in a school or in a group setting, you would rapidly see that even the slight loss of sensitivity would be made up in the tremendous breadth of testing that we'd be able to do. Now, we've heard a lot about some uh, people uh, who uh, contract the virus and who don't express any symptoms whatsoever, right? Uh, they didn't even know they were sick. Is there equivalence there in testing? Are there people who are sick, contagious, don't show symptoms, but neither would show positive on your LAMPS test? I have not seen that. Um, nothing's impossible in science, but that would be that would be surprising. I mean, this is pretty fundamental biology. Um, I suppose there would be there could be an error in the testing mechanism. You know, on the on the asymptomatic side, there's a whole variety of reasons for people not having any symptoms um, or being so mildly symptomatic that they don't realize it. You know, we have coronaviruses around us all the time, um, and you can sort of liken it to the phenomenon if if you have kids of that first year that your kid is in daycare, or preschool, or elementary school, and they bring home everything and, and you get sick with everything. But then with the subsequent kids, you don't quite get as sick because your immune system is sort of tuned up to this. Um, if you've been exposed to coronaviruses before, there's a good chance that your, your immune system, your T cell function has already been tuned up so that when you get exposed to this coronavirus, your body says, okay, I know what to do here. Even though I haven't seen this virus, I've seen something that looks enough like it that I know how to handle it. Um, and that may be one of the reasons that we're seeing some people that really have no response to COVID-19 while other people have such a significant one. So that's an interesting concept, but I want to go a little bit deeper on that. Uh, if in theory I've been exposed to a coronavirus, not the new novel coronavirus, but one that we've already been exposed to, I think there's six others. Did I, did I read mm -hmm. that Um so in theory, if I have uh, been exposed, my body's ready for the next one, right? A little more ready than it would otherwise be. Are there tests to know that uh, you or I might have been exposed and therefore um, are more or less apt to get very, very sick or perhaps be asymptomatic altogether? So there aren't any tests yet available in the U.S. to look at this, but there are tests in development both in the U.S. and the U.K. as well as in Asia, um, because this is really a critical question, particularly as we go into the fall and as we think about who should get priority with the vaccines. Um, how are we going to figure out the patients who are most at risk, but also patients who may already have some level of innate immunity because of their prior exposure and response to other coronaviruses? So many of our listeners at Hubwonk have reached out to me after our conversation last time and said, look, I'm in the high risk. I'm an older person. I have limited uh, lung capacity, COPD or something like that. Uh, what can I do? Are there uh, therapies? Um, and I, I bring this up because we talk about if I've been exposed, if I've already had coronavirus or I have these T cells or B cells, I can't keep them all tracked, uh, sorted with this alphabet, um, could theoretically 
uh, someone to be treated with uh, plasma or um, blood from someone who already has these antibodies so that they are, in a sense, um, brought up to speed or ready for the novel coronavirus if, it, if they're exposed? That is a great and very timely question. You know, over the weekend, the FDA approved con use of convalescent plasma for patients who've been really sick patients who are really sick. Um, there is a lot of argument on both sides. And I guess what I would be really interested in looking at, and I haven't seen this data teased out yet, is if there's, there's clearly a group of patients who do well with convalescent plasma. And what are the differences between the patients who do well with that convalescent plasma, who are able to use it to supplant their immune system and really mount an an appropriate response versus the patients who don't see that benefit um, and who don't really have any change in their disease trajectory. It's likely that there is some difference in the immune function of those patients. And perhaps instead of broadly approving it for all patients who have you know, severe COVID, we should be thinking about how do we tease out those differences and make sure that we're directing the convalescent plasma, if it were to work, to the patients who would most benefit. Um, you know, this is another one of those areas where I think it really makes the case for precision medicine. Uh, we've seen patients with COVID have such disparate response outcomes. And it's not just because of pre-existing conditions um, or it's not just because of, you know, prior exposure. There's clearly some fundamental differences, whether it be differences in structural DNA or differences in, in T-cell function that really impact how, how these patients do. And we, we should do a better job of understanding that. So say more. I know we talked a little bit in our last show together about precision medicine. Are you saying that um, much of the difference, the disparate impact of, of this disease is attributed to DNA or your, your, the, the stuff of your um, body? Uh, is it that you could test my DNA and anticipate or expect or predict my reaction? Um, and are, has science come that far? We can do this kind of medicine? So there are several ongoing trials and consortiums that are looking at this. Um, there's one study that's being run out of Augusta University in, uh, I believe in Georgia, where they are looking at structural variations in DNA. And they've been able to show that there are a small group of very impactful structural changes in DNA that confer a very severe reaction to COVID, which, you know, is, it makes sense. You know, everyone has either read about or heard or knows personally the story of, you know, someone who is very young and very healthy, um, who had a very severe reaction to COVID-19 or died. And conversely, a 95-year-old who barely had a reaction or, you know, was sick for a bit and recovered. So we know it's not just, you know, an, a factor of age, but there, there are clearly differences uh, between how patients do that are dictated either on the DNA level, on the immune function level, or some combination of both. Um, and there's active research going on in both those areas. I think the challenge is going to be how do we accelerate the development of that data to get it into clinical use, ideally sometime this fall? Because that's really when we're going to need to have this information um, before vaccines are widely available. How do we use that information to determine people who are truly high risk um, and need to continue quarantining even as things tend to, things are opening up um, and separate those, those people out and 
allow them to moderate their lives appropriately. Well, I feel like I've taken a trip to the future. Are, are you saying that uh, in, the, in the not too distant future, we could take a sample of our blood, analyze it, look for those markers that suggest we are hyper vulnerable or, uh, and put, therefore be put, let's say at the front of the line for the vaccine, or let's say the front of the line for isolation, uh, if you can't get the vaccine. Is, am I hearing that properly? Well, you're, that's my theory, but it is supported by a number of studies and consortiums that are currently working on this. I think the challenge is going to be accelerating the academic timeline of studying this into something that is going to be uh, clinically reasonable in, in terms of using that data when, it's, when it is going to make an impact during this pandemic. Let me take a step back, and we talked about the PCR test, which says whether we have the have had the virus or not been exposed. We don't know if it's the first day or it was you know six weeks ago. How persistent is that uh, uh, the existence of the virus in us? Meaning, when does it leave our body entirely, and what trace does it leave behind? I've heard that our our body learns, of course, uh, how to deal with a particular virus. Perhaps over time it forgets how to deal with it, but uh, you know, put some color on that. If I've had it, God forbid I had it early on, it was one of the first cases, and let's assume I, I survived and I'm well, do I need to worry about reinfection? Do I need you know, to worry about being contagious again, or am I done? I, I've made it through the storm and uh, I can go about my life. Well, we don't have enough data yet to for sure say that you're done. The virus has been around for probably about 10 months right now. Um, but the data does suggest that reinfection is really unlikely. Um, Eric Topol out of Scripps in California has been doing pretty extensive analysis on this, and he's, he's spoken about this pretty publicly, trying to of all the studies trying to determine whether reinfection is likely or possible. Um, and with maybe a couple of exceptions, it doesn't seem as though people who previously had COVID-19 are susceptible to infection. Um, some of that is being detected through the antibody tracing work that's being done. Um, but that is really a, an area of emerging data as we get you know, almost to the first full year of having COVID-19 in our lexicon. So let's talk a little bit about policy. We haven't really, in our last show, um, we threw a lot of shade at the FDA and some of the, the things that may not have gone right. Uh, but now, as we say, we're three months down the road, there's still a lot of conversations about the utility of the FDA being involved in the testing process. Um, where do you see, have they, have they righted the ship? Are we, uh, is the FDA actually useful and um, uh, ensuring tests are accurate and safe? Uh, or do you just still see them as as doing more harm? I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but as being uh, as harmful as useful. You know, I, I don't know what the right word to, to describe. <laughs> so I think my if I was going to talk to the FDA, and I'm certainly not the only one who's having this conversation right now. Um, you know, when we think about the tests that we need right now to track COVID, we need rapidly accessible, affordable, low cost of good tests that people can use at home, that can be used at schools, can be used in the workplace. And those tests should not be held to the same standard of sensitivity as PCR. They are different tests. They're looking for a different part of the disease makeup. They're looking for something that functions differently. Um, and right now, a lot of these tests are being held up within the FDA review process because they don't hold up to the standard of PCR. Um, and I think that is, I think that's a challenge for the FDA because they haven't really had to deal 
with this kind of a question, a safety challenge before. It's not to say that the rapid test that I referred to earlier should replace PCR at all. And PCR is without a doubt the gold standard for viral testing. But not allowing the use of these other tests is really fundamentally slowing down our ability to track and trace the virus, um, particularly in places where we have, like Massachusetts, where we have such low viral prevalence. It doesn't make sense to use PCR to track it in this area. It's just, it's not a good cost, it's not a good spend of resources. Okay, the Food and Drug Administration is a federal agency. Uh, What latitude do we have at the Massachusetts level, at the state level, uh, to allow our uh, testing or our technology to be used locally in Massachusetts, uh, perhaps without the constraints of the FDA or some federal agency imposed from beyond? Unfortunately, not in this space here. Um, in the in a pandemic, in a public health crisis, the FDA has a pretty strong. regulatory oversight for these type of tests. They can't be self-certified at the state level um, through the state CLIA. One thing that I would say, though, on the state level is um, it would be expeditious if we could change the affordability and the access to antigen tests. Um, If we're not going to have at-home paper strip testing anytime soon, um, changing the accessibility, whether through grant funding, whether through pooling, uh, to antigen tests would dramatically accelerate the number of people getting screened for currently active disease. Is this um, affordability challenge, is it saying um, the government should perhaps subsidize the production um, and therefore subsidize the purchase, or is it that they would produce it themselves in some way? I think, I think any of those options would be on the table. And I think while it would require some upfront investment, I think it would be significantly cheaper than all of the machinations that we're going through to try to open schools or to try to get businesses going or to try to support the hospitality industry, for example. Now, the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, has uh, evolved into a global epidemic, one that we will not soon forget. Uh, What do you think, as a policy perspective, we could do to better prepare for what seems to be an inevitable future uh, newly novel coronavirus? What could we be doing now to better build systems that can uh, serve us when the next coronavirus epidemic uh, strikes the world? So I think, number one, uh, having a coordinated testing strategy is going to be, is always the key facet. And I mean, this is, this is key with every disease. Getting the accurate, appropriate diagnosis as early as possible is important to treatment of every disease. And COVID-19 is something that has highlighted that for our entire healthcare system. Having a way to understand how labs can develop uh, and get paid for tests is also critical. Um, I think there's blame on both sides here because there are certainly stories of labs that are overcharging for COVID-19 tests. There are stories of labs that are charging thousands of dollars for COVID-19 tests. Um, I'm generally not someone who thinks that the government should be setting prices for diagnostic tests, Um, but in a situation of a pandemic, I think it would be good to understand from the beginning how the government is going to support both the validation and the democratization of diagnostics for a public health emergency. Interesting. That would probably make a good show uh, all by itself. 
Um, now, I know you've done some, you're doing some research right now, I think actually uh, with, uh, in conjunction with uh, one of our scholars at Pioneer with uh, Bill Smith. Do you want to share with our audience uh, anything about that research, uh, if, whether it relates to COVID or not? I'd, I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say. Sure. We're actually working on a comprehensive diagnostic strategy paper regarding how we could be dealing with COVID-19 um, and what next steps could be in order to optimize how we identify patients and control the disease. You know, upfront, how we can get out the easy to use at home tests, um, both from a policy level and from an economic piece in order to make sure we're tracking and tracing and understanding where we have disease spread, being able to tell what activities or gatherings are spreading the disease. And then the next step is identifying patients who are either more likely to have a significant response to COVID-19 or are, or seem to be very likely to already have a T-cell function that would allow them to appropriately respond or be asymptomatic. Um, and then how that testing strategy can then inform both vaccine development um, and access to vaccines. That sounds like a very good uh, case for precision medicine, um, which is wonderful. Uh, would that paper be targeting um, a local legislature or the FDA or the federal government, our local congressmen, who, who is this paper designed uh, to influence? Well, it's both designed locally and at the federal level because we are in a pandemic and it, usually during a pandemic, the federal response uh, overtakes the local state response. Um, but I think it's really key that we create funding mechanisms and reimbursement mechanisms to allow the acceleration and adoption of these diagnostic tests. You know, I mentioned the consortiums that are working on developing diagnostics to predict patients who are likely to have a significant response to COVID-19, but these are academic consortiums and they have timelines that are three to five years because that is the kind of standard academic timeline. And we really need this information now. And so we need to figure out how states and the federal government can accelerate the development of this type of information so that it can get into the hands of our physicians and it can be used in our population uh, when we need it, not when it's going to be a historical story that we write about in 2025. Well, this is very important research indeed. Well, I hope that uh, now that we're coming to the end of our conversation, I hope that I can invite you back to Hubwonk in the future and we can talk about the success of your research, the success of the testing technology, the success of precision medicine to help us with this and future uh, viruses. Thank you very much for your time and thank you for being on Hubwonk for the second time. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, your host. Hubwonk is a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you would like to support the show, there are three ways you can do that. You can give us a five-star rating, you can leave us a review, and you can share us with your friends. If you would like to reach me with comments or suggestions about future shows, you can reach me at hubonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubonk.